What I try to do throughout the book, the thing is the most concrete strategy that I have throughout the book is to hold on to my own capacity for wonder. That I can find something, not just that is surprising, but that I can find people who are alive and doing their own weird things in the past and let them keep doing that thing. This is Drafting the Past, a podcast about the craft of writing history. And I'm your host, Kay Carpenter. This week, I am delighted to share my conversation with historian Dan Bauck. Thanks for having me. Dr. Bauck is an associate professor of history at Colgate University and the author of two books. The first book, How Our Days Became Numbered, Risk and the Rise of the Statistical Individual, came out in 2015 with the University of Chicago Press. His newest book, Democracy's Data, the Hidden Stories in the U.S. Census and How to Read Them, was published just last week, and it's getting some great buzz. A New York Times book review just called it endearingly nerdy. To find out more about how he wrote a page-turning book about the census, of all things, and much more about his writing process, please enjoy this conversation with Dan Bauck. I remember distinctly sitting in a high school English class, speaking to a, a beloved teacher and telling her in all earnestness that I was going to college to study science so that I could never have to write an essay ever again. And she said to me, are you sure that's wise? And I said, yes, I'm very certain. I don't know what happened exactly. I mean, I do know what happened. I went to college. I studied computational mathematics. It was the, the science that had the fewest requirements of all of the sciences. And then I end up filling up all my other requirements with philosophy and a course on Shakespeare where we read 20 plays and then a, just actually only a handful of history classes, but very influential history classes. And it turned out I liked writing when, uh, when I was in control of it, I guess. So, so that's, the, that, that's the beginning of the trajectory. You went to grad school, obviously, for history. Did you have an approach to history and writing? when you arrived or did that evolve i suppose i the thing i like about history i have a number of friends who are novelists and i love reading novelists if you are a novelist listening to this and you'd like to be my friend i love reading novels in progress i'll put that out as an advertisement but one of the reasons i don't believe i could ever be a novelist is because of how terrifying it is to have no anchor to have to to, to imagine this whole world into existence. And as a writer, the thing that I, I'm a, I'm a deeply grounded writer. I always start from the details or the evidence and build out. I, as a result, I'm, I'm not as good at writing arguments or I have to come to my arguments through other sorts of means. Uh, but so from the very beginning, I, I would find a source or a voice or a line that I found interesting and I would build from and around it, explore with it. And so that, that was, I remember writing a philosophy paper in which one's supposed to make an argument as a first year in undergraduate uh, at Michigan State. And I went into the library, found a bunch of sermons delivered during the American Revolution and used them to make arguments about how wars might be considered just by the Christian faith. This was not what the assignment was. Uh, but, <laughs> like, but this was how I knew to make a claim was to first find other people making claims and to put it together. My, um, the, I took a course in American intellectual history with David Bailey, to whom my new book is, it's in memory of him. He introduced me to William James. And in William James, I found a kindred spirit in a many, many different ways, but one way as a writer, because James basically just strings together other people's texts in a creative and illuminating fashion that then bring out from them things that you might not otherwise expect, but, it, but he's, he's a collagist in all kinds of certain ways. And while I'm not nearly so, well, today's genres don't allow that sort of writing, it's in spirit. I think that's kind of the, the practice I've brought to my own work. Well, let's start just by talking about the nuts and bolts of how you work. What is your research process like and how do you organize sources? Was, I mean, it varies a little bit and changes over time. For this most recent project, uh, a lot of my sources were online through Ancestry, through the National Archives 
directly their their services or those were those were at that point quite a bit slower than ancestry was because I was working through census records and so in that case i would just spend a lot of time looking through old in this case digitized versions of micro photographs of old sheets that i would i would piece through but then a lot of the work also involved doing stuff in the national archives and there those those were great trips i would drive down to DC or take a train down to DC or take a bus down to DC from New York. I would stay in a hostel because I find hotels alienating. And then I would walk about three miles every day down to the National Archives. From the moment it opens until the moment it closes, I just stood in one place with a, a you know a large camera and took pictures. Every I take a picture of the box. I take a picture of each folder so that I know where I am. I keep a Word document open and I write down the name of the box, the name of the folder. I try to, as I go, kind of create full citations for each of my archival sources or each of each of the folders, at least, as I go. And then within them, at that point, as I'm taking photos, usually I just write a quick note to myself, like, took a bunch of photos, talked about this, 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 this. And then when I get home to the, every evening to the hostel, I download all those photos, I print them into a PDF. And then over the course of the ensuing months, as I work through them, that Word document, I start to put image numbers next to each of the different places that I'd already filled in so that I know where each section, where each box, each folder begins in that PDF for then me, so I can go back and forth through them over and over. At what point in your research process do you start writing? Really early. I mean, it varies a little bit from each project. For In this case, I began to gather these materials. I had written one book. I wondered if I could write a second book. I assumed I could, but you know, I can't tell until you do it. And I, uh, I felt like I needed an extra nudge to start working through this material. I knew I wanted to write about, by that point, the 1940 census, but that could mean a lot of things. And so I, rather than having to lock myself into anything to begin with, I decided I'll just start writing about interesting sources. This is a pattern that I'm finding. And look for stories and try to build out from there and see what I discover. And so I decided, well, I mean, this sounds like a blog, so I should just start a blog. And indeed, I started a blog called censusstories.us. And it was so useful, uh, not just because it gave me a reason to work through material, although it did that, but it gave me an audience, not a big one, but a good audience of people who would reliably read this, occasionally send me questions or notes. Or even just, you know, when I could see on my little Google counter that somebody else had read it, I was like, oh, somebody's reading this. There's a reason to continue. And, and that thrill would then drive me forward through the next story, right? I've got to get another one up there so that I can get that, that high of another set of readers going through and looking at this piece. And over time, I, I started to, to develop a sense of what this project might look like. And I think also importantly, I started to figure out what I thought the voice for the project should be because I'd had all of these different moments to experiment and figure out how I wanted to write about the census. Did you worry at all or did you encounter any concern about writing on your blog versus then writing a book project? Yeah, I thought about that. There's two reasons I can give for why I went ahead with it the way I did. One was I already had tenure. And so if for whatever reason it didn't turn into a book. It didn't work out. Somebody wouldn't let me do something because I already given away all the good material. I didn't have a lot to lose. With that said, I still actually think that probably a lot of people can, could get away with this. And in fact, it has more than anything else been an advantage. The blog served as, a, as evidence for my publishers that there were people out there who wanted to read this. From it and from those readers, I had evidence that an audience existed. I had people saying, this is surprisingly interesting that I could then share and show people. So, so in that sense, I, I don't think that concern was necessarily there. And then the second factor was, I'm writing modern US history. And it's really important to acknowledge that the market for modern US history is much more forgiving and much larger than uh, many of my fellow historians. And so it, um, it allows me to get away with stuff that I just don't know if other people, if, if people in other fields would be able to get away with. 
I want to, I have a lot more questions about the process of publishing this book, but I want to come back and keep asking first about, you know, it, what does your revision process look like if you, as you start, especially writing early? I write to figure out things. Writing is for me, this is uh, appropriate, I guess, because uh, he recently died. David McCullough came to Michigan State when I was a first year to give a, an, a big address. He was introduced by David Bailey, which is how I found out that Bailey existed. And he became then my, my first mentor. And McCullough told the story, which he's told many, many times before, about taking courses with Thornton Wilder and how Wilder would explain to his students that writing is thinking clearly. And that struck first year me, and it strikes much older me now still. So I keep a, when I keep a journal in my computer, it's called Thinking Clearly, and it's the place where I write. And, and writing for me is that, that thing that I do when I want to work out ideas. It is when, when like I've, been, I've had to talk to too many people or I've been taking care of the child or doing too many things for too long, I go and write because that is the place I get to be alone and just think with my own thoughts and work things out. And so as a result, my, because of that relationship to writing, each of my drafts, each time I working on, I'm working on a chapter or a piece, I often just start from scratch. I will, I'll write through once, organize all of my evidence and ideas that one time through, and then I'll open up a new document for this book because I was writing it first as a blog because I needed an escape from Microsoft Word and the, just the feelings I had about Microsoft Word. I was working in a text editor where I could write in Markdown, Adam, and I would open up a new sheet and I would just start writing again from scratch. And occasionally I would borrow some materials and I would certainly scavenge quotes and scavenge sources. And as I, as I would be writing a first draft, I would write a sentence and then instead of footnotes, because I was writing a markdown, I would write a comment, a commented section. And I would put in there the citation, but then also I would often just like type out long sets of notes from the source that I was working on. And so then I could go and, and harvest from those materials that I could draw in, in later versions. But then, so then the second time through, I start from scratch. I, I have a now a better sense of what I think the story is about. And I go through it. And I often go through a number of drafts, a depressingly large number, probably of drafts of, of each chapter or section. Are there other people you rely on for feedback as you're writing? Oh, yes. Well, I mean, like I say, at one level, everybody, because I put it on the internet and I, and I hope lots and lots of people will respond. One chapter, I have a chapter about the, the concept of the partner, the idea of the partner. And that in, arose entirely from a question that one of my readers posed me, Ansley Erickson at Teachers College, who, to whom I will be forever grateful. And so, so that was the case there. And then when I, when I got to be a little bit further on, I had, well, I guess, I mean, early in the stages, I have other readers too. Um, I've had people who I share drafts with as I go along. I have people I talk on the phone with. So early in the process, I was talking with Joanna Radin, who is a historian of science, and a friend of mine who talks, writes about the history of data in really powerful ways, thinking about how people are and their, their histories are told in data sources. And she and I have spent a lot of time just kind of talking through things and, um, and a lot of her sensibilities and her ways of seeing the world are, I think, reflected in the way the book turned out. In, in this whole process, one thing that, that I think is important, this book couldn't be written if I didn't have my history lab. So in this case, this is, I would, Colgate gives me a little bit of funds to hire student researchers. I learned a number of years ago that I seldom could come up with enough work or the right kind of work to keep one person busy for that number of hours that they would allow me to hire somebody. And I also found out that I was lonely, desperately lonely as a historian. And I liked back in the days when I was a scientist and I got to work in labs. And so I decided to create a history lab where I would just basically hire three or four students and we would all meet once or twice a week in our meetings together. We just kind of work things out. It's fun. We, we look at a source together that somebody has found and try to interpret the handwriting together. It's a, a, a place for me to be able to, to teach somebody how to think like a historian. I don't have graduate students. But beyond that, it was incredibly useful because I can't look through all of these census records on my own. And so when, for instance, I went to... Dartmouth and found thousands and thousands of letters written to a senator by people who were complaining about an income question in the census, I could then come back. My history lab helps me put together a spreadsheet in which we name everybody who wrote a letter, not everybody, but an awful lot of people who wrote a letter to the senator. And then they work with me to see if we can find those people in the census records. 
And then from there, we can figure out if any of those people said anything interesting. And then like Emily Karavich was one of my folks in my history lab. And she realized that there was one group of letters that seemed to be together that were kind of weird. And, and then she helped find all of them. And then we realized, oh, wait a second, they all like worked in the poor office in, they all worked in the welfare office, basically. And they're all complaining about how it's degrading to have somebody know how much income you make. And it's like, oh, well, that's an interesting, right? They would know. And, and I, I, again, I wouldn't have probably figured that out if it hadn't been Emily putting those pieces together. And, and there's a lot of places in the book there where it's only because I was able to have this whole collective effort that the, this became possible. So I have, I have like people I work through ideas with, people I occasionally share drafts with. And then once I had a full manuscript, I sent a version to my editor, but I also printed out and bound at Staples 10 or 12 or 14 copies of the whole manuscript. And I was uh, with a trade press, so they didn't have a formal peer review process. So I sent some to some scholars in the field who I hoped would be willing to read it and give me feedback. And then I also picked a number of people who weren't scholars in the field. Some were scholars, some were not scholars. They're people I had I'd worked with previously uh, who I really liked and really respected. And I just asked them if they'd be willing to read it. I, you know, I offered them a, a not particularly large reading fee. And I said, I'd give them a copy of the book when it was done. And I just asked that they read it and that they mark. This is something I learned from my friend Robin Sloan, who's a novelist, that I asked them just kind of as they were going to mark in the margins places where they got bored or places where they lost interest or things they thought were really interesting. Especially, I mean, it's very nice to have positive feedback too. Uh, and they could give me more general comments, but in some ways just to kind of like read through and just, you know, kind of like the the knobs that you turn when you're watching a show in those uh, focus groups, like you just kind of go through and tell me what's working, what's not working. And then just here's an envelope, ship it back to me. All right, we'll have a conversation or we'll meet somewhere and talk about it. And so in the end, I had a lot of people who read the whole manuscript. And that was, I mean, it's really useful. I, my default, when somebody tells me something is often to think that they're not right. I mean, and then very quickly, I realized, oh, no, they actually, they actually are right. But I think, I think that's, you know, that's a kind of a useful default because it means a little bit of resistance is there. But then when you have 14 people telling you fairly similar things, or actually more, even more interesting, 14 people telling you slightly different things, you have to figure out, oh, this is why when that person said this and this person said that, it's not that I don't have to do what this person wanted me to do. I can do what this person wants me to do and I'll solve what this other person wants me to do. Or I can do a third thing, which is actually the solution to all of these problems. And so I found it really, really, really useful to be able to triangulate a lot of different feedback. I love that you ask readers to mark where they get bored, which I think my undergrad was in journalism. That's like a, a not unusual sort of way to read something is at what point would someone put down the magazine or the newspaper? It's not something that historians usually talk about, I think, often when they're reading. You know, they talk about, like, is the argument confusing or, or that sort of thing, but not like, where did you get bored? And you have often sort of described yourself as someone who makes boring things less, less boring, who makes things interesting. How did that become such a focus for you? I like it. In the, when you were talking earlier, you mentioned this is my brand, and that's entirely right. That's, that is my brand. Oh, say the one thing, right? I got that there's a genealogy to that technique that goes exactly as you anticipated, right? My friend Robin Sloan and I, we both went to Michigan State together. He went off and did a internship. He studied economics, but went off and did an internship at Pointer. And so was trained by journalists in thinking about how to read. And so he came back then to me with the, you know, you got to put the gold coins all the way through. And then this is how you do this, how you, how you do reading of things. And he asked me to do this with his manuscripts. And then I stole it from him and introduced it to mine. So that's true. I didn't pick that, that particular method up from historians. But it is good to want readers to keep reading. So I think it, I think it is a, it's a valuable technique. I, I don't know about the boring thing. I am attracted to topics that people often find to be boring. Some amount of that, I think, has to do with a certain level of cowardice on my part, that when one picks interesting things... The stakes are high. Like a lot of people have already written about this. A lot is expected. They're often highly contentious. When you start with something that no one cares about, the field is open. People don't have strong feelings about it in the first place. 
the the bar is so low it's it's so like they're you're you're ready to be excited and entertained it's like it's a different move to take something that where people say like i don't think that that could possibly have a story in it and to say oh, 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 oh there's a story in it and that that buys you something with your readers it gives you a moment to to get them to be excited about a discovery a discovery hidden in plain sight and i suppose the other thing to say is i also just think it's important when i when i left undergraduate and was trying to think about what to do i was teaching with americorps i was reading a lot of books about writing and for a brief moment there i thought oh yeah, what i want to do is just write about I just want to interview people who build sewers and I want to find out what it's like to build a sewer. And it was, I was reading Louis Manan's The Metaphysical Club, which had recently came out there. And it was in the footnotes there that I found a reference to Ted Porter and discovered that the history of statistics existed. And that sounded very boring and also like something that was really influential in the modern world, but that, that I thought might have some stories behind it. And so I was, I was kind of led in that direction. And then people told me basically what my brand was. I would be in our, our program seminar at Princeton when I was a graduate student writing about mosquito eradication. And somebody would say, this was not as boring as I thought it was going to be. And that <laughs> is by far the most common comment I've ever gotten in my career. And so that's, you know, I just embraced it. It sounds like, you know, your first book arose out of your dissertation. But it sounds like this sort of focus on writing, writing in a really engaging way has always been there. Did your writing process change from your first to second books? Yes. Yes, a great deal. I would say, well, I mean, the first book, there were different kinds of pressures, but also there was a, distinctly a different audience. I had written a dissertation. I, I then turned it into a book. True to form, it took me a long time to turn it into a book, in part because almost none of the dissertation, like none of the sentences from the dissertation showed up in the book because I'm not capable of just of revising and I'm not written it that way. And that's just, and it's the way I read things. I have very dear friends who, who were able to, to do it differently. They wrote dissertations that wrote, read like books and turned them seamlessly into books and did a wonderful job with it. That was not me. But I also, I just thought of, I was writing for fellow scholars mainly. I dreamed, of course, that other people would read it, but I, I wasn't counting on that. And I also, I, I did then, and I still now, thought of myself as an artist as much as a scholar. My, my partner, an opera singer, disagrees with me about this, but we, we can, <laughs> that's a fight for home, not for the, the radio, the podcast. But I thought of myself as an artist. And so each of the chapters in my first book, I thought of as kind of experimental. I have one chapter that's built around a Charles Ives pamphlet. And so I wrote it as a kind of symphonic set of series in which each of the chapters weaves together three different themes. Very difficult to read. I mean, really, like not a nice strategy in terms of keeping readers around. Like certainly there were much more straightforward paths to tell the story that I told. Uh, but I had a great deal of fun doing it. I have a chapter built around five images that I then use to tell a story as we follow the treadmill through a bureaucratic adventure in New York life insurance company. These were for me experiments, really experiments in writing and thinking about storytelling and thinking about history. And not surprisingly, as a result, this book has had a good number of readers, but fewer readers. It, it ended up having a lot more readers than I expected in some ways, because I didn't know that this whole new field of critical data studies of uh, studies of algorithms was about to emerge just the same moment that I was writing this book. And so it's found those folks have found this book and found it more useful than in ways they didn't anticipate. But again, had I been smarter and realized they were there, I could have actually addressed them more directly in the book, in the historiography, in the introduction. So, so that was the process for this first book. For the second book, I, I had a different sense of the audience. I wanted to, from the get-go, figure out a way to tell the story that would make it inviting to a lot of different readers and it's still in its own way experimental, but not experimental in a way that would make it difficult. To understand exactly how he did this, I asked Dan to talk me through a passage from his new book. Here's Dan Bauck reading from the very beginning of Democracy's Data. There are stories in the data. 
You just have to know how to read them. Imagine a table of numbers, column after column of digits and decimals gleaming with precision, ornamented only by an aura of objectivity. This is data, to be sure. Now loosen the hold that image of data has on us. Let in some other visions of how data might be manifested. Think of a form to be filled in, on paper or a screen, intended to gather information that can later be quantified. That form is like a street corner, a conference room, a transit hub. People and institutions meet on that form. Someone somewhere designed that form, deciding on the set of questions to be asked or the spaces to be left blank. Maybe they also listed some possible answers or limited the acceptable responses. You then encounter this designed environment as you hunch over the form. Or maybe, instead a questioner brings the form to the threshold of your home, to your doorstep. That questioner then tackles the difficult task of fitting the unruly reality of your life within the form's straight-ruled lines. The final resulting form, and all that is written upon it as well, as all the negotiations that shaped it, whether backstage or off-screen, so to speak. All of this is data, too. The data behind the numbers. I asked you in part about this passage, as I told you before this conversation, because I'm interested in the fact that this, this passage is not how historians often write. There's no sort of direct evidence here, although, of course, lots of research goes into this. There's not really a clear argument immediately. It's, it's very lyrical, and it invites the reader in. Talk to me a little bit about how you decided to start this way and what it takes to write a passage like this. I mean, so this particular passage, as the first line in books, as is often the case, came very late, at the very, very end of the, of the process, as I was deciding amongst a number of possible audiences or centers for the book, right? It, it was sprawled in a number of ways. So my, my former graduate advisor, Dan Rogers, was kind enough to read the book. And I remember sitting with him on a bench and him saying, you kind of have to decide what kind of book this is going to be. As I had begun writing it, I had started off in part with the advice of my editor, Sean McDonald, who said, you know, you've read Stephen Johnson's The Ghost Map, right? I'm like, yeah. He goes, think about that. And I looked back at it again and I was like, oh yeah, this is really, this feels like this is a book about a map, right? About a cholera map. But in fact, it's really about cities and about how cities organize and how knowledge works within a city. And that I thought, oh yeah, this is what I, you know, I'm writing a book about the census, but I'm not really writing a book about just the census. I want to figure out how do we know what we know about a nation and how do people, how do people fit themselves within the categories and the ways of knowing that states allow them. And so I knew from the get-go that that was kind of what I was doing. But then I, you write a book and, it, and you're grounded by all these sources and it takes you in all kinds of different, different directions. And then you have to wrestle it into place at the very end. And so this was my attempt, at least, to bring it back for myself and for others. The, basically, the beginning of almost each chapter was rewritten at that point in a way to try to help draw that theme back in that what this book is ultimately about is not just a story about the census, not a story primarily for, for historians, but for people who have had the experience or who live in a world in which they have to explain themselves to a data system. And this is a book for them to think about what that process means, where it comes from, how we live and work, and protest and engage within that kind of system. Your writing is so, I want to say invitational in this book, in this, in this opening, but then throughout you often speak to the reader and, and ask them to come along with you in a sense. I was struck especially that there are a number of images included in this book where you've assembled clips from the census or different parts of the census, and you were in many ways teaching the reader to read it alongside of you. Was that an approach that you knew was going to be part of the book going in, or did that emerge as you wrote? I think it was there. I remember distinctly about midway through the process of writing the book, I had taken 
what turned into a two-year leave from Colgate to join the Data and Society Research Institute, which is a kind of think tank that was at that point situated in midtown Manhattan. It now lives on the internet, like many places do. And so I would commute from northern Manhattan, where I live, and I would be wandering down by the, the, or by the Flatiron, by the old Metropolitan Tower, and I would look at these buildings. And when I, when I look at these buildings, which have like a very grid-like structure, so they feel very data-y to me in the first place. They, they, they represent on their exteriors the same kind of aesthetic as a punch card. But when I looked at them, what I thought about was this book I read by Carol Willis called Form Follows Finance, in which she explains how it is the architectural structures of these buildings were determined in really important ways by financial considerations in terms of how they would be ultimately rented to, to folks in the future. And I thought they were so much more beautiful because I knew this. Like the, what a building I was already attracted to suddenly gained even more um, allure and, and became even more aesthetically pleasing Precisely because I knew more about it. And I'd had this experience before when I read Baxendahl's book about the 14th century art, which I'm, I see the title is escaping me, when as an undergraduate, I'd read Robert Pinsky on poetry, The Sounds of Poetry. These forms that I knew I liked, or in poetry, I didn't know I liked it, but I came to like it, became suddenly alive to me because somebody had helped me figure out a different way of seeing them. And so I was from the from the beginning thinking, well, maybe this book could be about reading data. And the census is a and a, a shared text that's attractive because it's available, because from 1940 on and now from 1950 back, all of the records about individuals are are digitized and made available through the national government that is attractive because people already read it. There are millions of people who do family history and genealogy who already rely on these records. And what if I work with those people and I invite in new readers and we all think together that what we're doing when we look at these materials is reading data. And so in a kind of conspiratorial sense too, I think about this as expanding the ambit of people who can be data people beyond just those who, the quants who we normally think belong in such spaces. I mentioned this before, but I'm going to quote it to you now and see if I can make you blush. But Kirkus called Democracy's Data a page turner. Booklist talked about how fun it was. And these are not necessarily even words that often apply to histories, let alone a history of the census or histories of data. Do you have concrete strategies that you use when you write to make... <laughs> to make your work page turning and fun? So that's a great question. I have a complicated relationship with this book list one. MC, MCD has, has like a pull, made a pull quote from it. And it, and, in the, and it says, genealogists, history lovers, and anyone interested in how government works will find this a fun and revealing history of how politics, racism, and bias affect the census. Now, fun and politics, racism, and bias don't belong in like, neighboring clauses and so 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 i it's, I, so I kind of i read that and i think oh no like what did i do but and so like i try to think what do they mean when they say fun there and i don't know of course right? who knows what they said what they mean what i think they mean though is not that i've shown them a way in which there's something fun or funny about bias or racism or even that those sections are particularly fun to read but what I try to do throughout the book, the thing is the most concrete strategy that I have throughout the book is to hold on to my own capacity for wonder, that I can find something, not just that is surprising, but that I can find people who are alive and doing their own weird things in the past and let them keep doing that thing, even amidst this world and the story in which some really terrible stuff is happening. And so I think that's a lot of what that means to, to call it fun is that I, I can, I can be, I have a chapter called silences and white supremacy. And it closes though, in part by thinking about this mother and her son, the mother who works for the federal government in Washington, DC, the son who is a census enumerator, who's trained as an architectural draftsman. And I talk about how 
wonderful his handwriting is because it looks like an architectural draftsman wrote this stuff. And I hope that what that detail does is it brings to life a little bit of sense of like, all right, yeah, look at these people live in. Look at them doing their thing, even though, right, it's, I'm also noting that they're not represented in the government, that they don't have a, a congressional representative in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C., listeners might note, still doesn't have senators or full representation in the government, despite having an awful lot of people, uh, which is something that maybe the United States government might consider changing and the people might consider changing. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of one way I approach this. But I admit, you asked me this question, you, you mentioned this question to me ahead of time, and I was thinking, oh, no, how, what, what do I do? Like, how do I do this? So I, <laughs> if you'll admit me, I was kind of just glancing through the book to figure out what did I do? And so here's one piece. This is from a chapter called Names and Negotiations early on. And I'm talking about an investigation in California. And it says, those supervisors were charged with hiring and managing the teams of enumerators who conducted the counts within their enumeration districts. One of the assistant supervisors in a Los Angeles, California district was named, well, actually, I won't give him a name just yet, because his name, or more precisely, his names, became a question of some importance in the context of a larger political strategy or controversy. And the story of his name, or names, speaks to the nature of names as they get recorded as data. And so, I mean, I guess like one of the things that I'm doing pretty consistently, and one of the reasons I was drawn to this is there are a lot of mysteries and mysteries can be frustrating for a historian because you want to know how things happen. But most of what we, most of our sources are chock full of mysteries and mystery can also be a source of narrative drive. And so I often, the thing I, I most frequently try to do is take things where if I don't yet to know the answer, I start with that question, I try to discover the answer, and then I tell the story of as much as the answer as I could find, and then I use what remaining mystery there is as a tool to build suspense or a means to try to encourage the reader to want to know, I wonder what happens next. And so I hope that that's kind of why it feels like there's a sense that this is a page term, because there's important questions are being raised, and you feel like you want to keep going to figure out how the story's going to end. It's interesting because you you seem to hold on then to the sense of surprise and curiosity that you have when you first encounter the archive. You know, I think sometimes as historians, once we've done all the research, we can forget how how foreign things seem to us when we first arrived at the archive, you know, all the questions that we had. And you you really have made sure not to lose track of that then when you turn to the writing, that you remember the kinds of questions the readers might have because you had those questions too. I wonder if that's how it is. I mean, just I don't want listeners to get the wrong impression. Um, I'm exactly that historian friend who wanders around well actually everything and pouring cold water on all fun conversations. So it, it, it does it must be a practice of work. It, it must be something that I'm, I'm cultivating in writing to try to to bring out that sense of wonder because it escapes me constantly in my actual life. But it is, it is a, I mentioned earlier, my kind of Jamesian influences, and that is important to me. I mean, it's, it's also, it runs through the tradition of being a social historian or thinking of social history. It runs through the, all kinds of traditions of the kinds of folks who I'm reading, whether it's in technology studies, something like someone like Ruha Benjamin talking about race critical code studies, or, or whether it's like. I would every day at the National Archives, or not every day, many days after the archives, I would walk first before I went home, I would walk over to the Smithsonian Museum of American Art, and I would look at this 1934 painting by Lily Ferretti called Subway, in which she captures an A-train, a New York City A-train, with just this melange of people living their lives. And, and that, that was, for me, a kind of totem of what I wanted the book to be as well, a look at what, how do you picture a diverse America? and honestly and openly capture the dignity of all of these individuals, even when you're dealing with a source in which dignity is not the first priority necessarily of all of the people who are doing this enumeration. I went in like 8 million directions in that answer, but, 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 but that's, that, that's how the only way that I can do that thing, I guess, of holding on to the wonder is I've got a number of ethical and, and aesthetic commitments, and I just try to kind of re- remind myself of those and expose myself to those so that then when I'm in the sources, they drive me in the way I tell the story. I want to turn to talking a little bit about publishing and your publishing process in this book. 
in the acknowledgements, you mentioned your agent. And I think you said, I, I, I even jotted down that, that they found you, helped you imagine this book, and then guided you through the process of writing it. So I'm, I'm curious to know kind of just the, the process of coming up with this book, of selling it, and how that went. I was quoted in the New York Times in, I don't know, 2015, 2016, about something totally different, about something that had to do with life insurance and the, the, the sale of policies, policies on enslaved people. And... So Jane von Maren from Avidas Creative read that story, emailed me and said, hey, do you have anything interesting going on? I said, I don't know. And so we went and we met in her office and we talked for about an hour about a project I was working on. I was at that point working on a book that it was in some way about kind of the baby boom and about how we think about what the baby boom is and about demographic research and these sort of things. And we talked about it for a while. And then she and I both agreed that like it was not a trade book, whatever it was. We didn't really know what it was, but it was not the right thing. And so we parted am amicably and said, see you later. And then uh, I think a couple of years later, I was working on, I was writing this blog and I had started, I'd written a few, by that point, a number of stories. And I started to see readers respond to it and be interested in it. And I said, maybe this, maybe this is it. And so then I, I emailed Jane and said, hey, I've been doing this thing. And she said, yeah, I saw that. Let's talk about it. And I mean, I'm enormously lucky because then Jane spent a lot of time with me. She gave me models of uh, trade book proposals, which, which are a different form than the book proposal that I'd learned to do um, as an academic doing. I mean, university presses also sell trade books. So I want to be careful about the, in the language, but like the academic monograph that I had written in the, in the past, that kind of proposal was a very different kind of beast. This one was much more like a, almost like a condensed version of the entire book that I was writing, 100 pages or so, that really gave a full sense of like the tone and the voice and the arc of this book. And then Jane, I mean, she invested a lot in me. She, like we would meet, she would give me deadlines, we'd meet every few weeks, and then she would read ahead of time what I had done and tell me where I had grasped this genre and where I had not grasped this genre. And, and uh, as a result, we worked, we eventually worked it out. And she finally said, like, I think this might be a thing. And so we sent it out to a whole bunch of different places and crossed our fingers. Now, in this case, it landed at MCD for a number of reasons, but I'm sure it did not hurt that, like, I'm, I now mentioned him a number of times, but my friend Robin Sloan publishes MCD, and he sent a nice note saying, you can look at this. And I don't, th and I think it's probably also both honest and important to acknowledge that it doesn't hurt to have connections uh, in the publishing world in general. My, my first book, I got a concrete contract in part because I was talking to somebody at a conference and said, oh, I really like to publish in Chicago. And they said, oh, I'll tell somebody in Chicago that. And then Chicago called me. I mean, so there's, a, there's an honest way to play the game, maybe, but I think everybody relies on connections whenever possible. And uh, it's part of the game is to figure out and how, to, how to talk to people, show what you're doing and get people excited. and then. Get, build a team, build a team together, people who want to bring something out into the world. What was it like to work with the trade press on this book? It was so luxurious. I, I mean, what I, what I mean is there are, there's just a lot of people who are invested in making this book good. And there's a lot of money that they have that they can apply to that process of making it, making it good. So I had a great copy editor. I mean, in the process of the copy editing, it didn't feel great all the time because we were arguing about things, but, the, but it was a great copy editor. And then at the proof stage, when we had proofs, I, I did the proofs myself, but then numerous other people were hired to read the proofs of my book and they caught lots of things that I otherwise wouldn't have caught, right? Like this is that you, you get, you occasionally read book reviews in journals in which people say, the press really should have done a better job proof, proving this book. And I've always thought that was kind of silly because we all know that authors do other proofing. But maybe back in the day, there was a time at which presses had the funds in which they were capable to hire to do this sort of thing. And I can say now that it's, wow, is it cool to have people there doing the support work and doing this proofing. And, um, and it, it gives you a sense of why and how trade books end up looking so clean so often. It's because like, there's just a lot of energy and effort of people put into this. My, my editor, he read the, the entire manuscript and gave me not line edits, really, but, but kind of 
big, a very long, big set of comments about like the whole structure that then I could I could triangulate and work with. They were very smart through with these other comments. But not only him, his assistant also read the entire manuscript and she gave me these great comments along the way, right? Like it's just, that's why I say it's luxurious. It was really pretty cool to realize that all these people were, were working to make this book good. Well, I, w- I want to ask before I let you go, you've mentioned a few people along the way, but are there other writers that you read and look to for in- inspiration or other genres for that matter? I mean, so many people. I mean, what, one person I should mention, both as a writer and just in terms of like, I should mention this when I were talking about readers, good heavens. When I went to Data and Society, it was so I could work alongside Dana Boyd, who is an ethnographer who was during the 2020 census embedded in the Census Bureau. And so she and I were, were thinking about these questions alongside one another. And I often say, and it, it's a little bit of a joke, but it's actually entirely true that like Dana would drag me into the present. So Dana would consistently and constantly force me to ask the question, like, why does this matter right now? I kind of got hooked on the idea that I could actually be useful. I was, I, I was on record in plenty of places saying historians are not useful. That is our job. Our job is not to be useful. And then in the course of the 2020 census, I, through Dana, came to be connected with folks who were advocating for the 2020 census, who were concerned about, in particular, political interventions that were making it more difficult to get everyone counted and everyone being counted is something that I think is a, both a moral and political responsibility. And so I, I learned that historians can be very useful, not because we, we come up with grand arguments. So like the things that other historians value, and I value too, are not the primary way that we're useful. We're useful because we know a lot of stuff about record systems and we know where things are. And so I'd have uh, lawyers or people with civil rights groups who would say, why is this like this? And I'd say, oh, I don't know, but I'll find out. And I would go and look and try to figure this out. And I would learn a great deal about the census in the process of doing this. I could produce a little white paper or something or, you know, PowerPoint presentation for these folks who then they could use in their advocacy, advocacy work. And we all benefited from this. And so I didn't so much, wasn't so much reading as by working alongside Dana, by working with these, with lawyers, advocates, activists, I, I learned a lot of different ways of seeing the census that otherwise I would have never had any way of, of appreciating. I guess the other universe, I would say, is our novelists. I love, I love reading novelists when I have a chance, and there are a number of really great novelists of bureaucracies. I remember I was in the New York Public Library and I saw peeking out one time this title that was The Beautiful Bureau. And then it had like the New York Public Library um, call number <laughs> sheet over it. I'm like, that's gotta say bureaucrat. And sure enough, I pulled it out and it was The Beautiful Bureaucrat. And I thought, oh, and it is just this enormously like inventive, very slim and gorgeous novel that I golfed down. Helen Phillips wrote The Beautiful Bureaucrat. After that, she wrote this, what is one of the best novels I read in 2019 or 2020 called The Need, in which she takes ordinary parenting and turns it into this really thrilling and startling and kind of scary thriller. So, so I mean, I think one of the reasons I like reading Helen Phillips is because, like me, she's trying to take ordinary things and show the drama inside of them. Or there was this book called Census by Jesse Ball, which was suggested to me by my friend, the documentary maker, Penny Lane. And, and what Ball does is he writes and imagines a different kind of census, census in which people go and just kind of ask open-ended questions about, to people. And it's, a, and it's this like really wonderful, inventive way of thinking otherwise about what a census might be. And Penny's work, too, um, is, is for me really inspiring. She most recently produced a documentary for HBO on Kenny G. And one of the things that Penny does over and over again is she comes to sources and she's just so intent on understanding them in their own, from their own view, from their own viewpoint, in a way that then takes, in this case, like someone who a lot of people love, a lot of people look down upon as like terribly middle brow and, and helps to see why he thinks, why he does what he does and why other people enjoy what he does. And 
kind of explores from all these different angles. And it just has this like this great generosity of spirit, which I think is the thing that I look for and that draws me in to like anybody I read. That generosity of spirit is, I think, one of the most important things I'm looking for. Before I let you go, can I ask you if you're working on anything new now? So like I say, I learned from this project that a historian could occasionally be useful. And I found that interesting because it gives me a reason, another reason beyond blogging to write and to, to study things. And so I'm in the very, 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 very early stages of this project. But I lived here in New York through the 2020 defund New York police department protests. My, my kid and I would walk down to, to City Hall in the midst of those. And I, I kind of saw this happen. And then I saw the city council pass a budget that did not defund New York Police Department. And I'm living right now through other kind of budget debates here in New York City. And the budget is a very boring topic. And so it's right up my alley. And so I, I want to write a book that is about the history of budget activism. And I'm kind of imagining it as something like a history of defunding, like how and why people defund things or argue for the defunding of things. Maybe, maybe the thread will be uh, one particular kind of argument, something like the argument over defund NYPD, maybe it'd be something entirely different, but that'll be the, the excuse we have then to dig into these questions about how it is that cities and states make budgets, how people treat budgets as political and moral documents. I don't really know. I'm learning. I'm, I'm about to start teaching in a week, a new course called the history of money, which I will use also to try to help me figure out what it is that I'm going to be writing. But so. I'll let you know in 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. I will be waiting with bated breath in the meantime. Well, Dr. Beck, thank you so much for joining me. Um, this is great. I really enjoyed hearing more about your writing process. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Dr. Dan Falk for joining me on Drafting the Past. His new book, Democracy's Data, is out now, and you can purchase it through the link in our show notes at draftingthepast.com. One more note before we go. This week, I launched a Patreon account for Drafting the Past. In case you are unfamiliar with Patreon, it's a platform that allows audience members like you to contribute a couple of dollars a month to support art and content that you love. If you're a fan of Drafting the Past and you'd like to help fund the show's continued production, check out patreon.com forward slash drafting the past or find the link in the show notes. Until next time, happy writing.